Welcome to the fifth episode of Redemption, a podcast series to save deposit return systems. Today, we look at the fourth of the practices laid out in A Guide to Modern Deposit Return Systems, 10 Essential Practices, which you can find at bottlebillreimagined.org. This fourth essential practice in the area of regulations is oversight and enforcement. Let me go right to the guide to see how this important practice is articulated. Oversight and enforcement by state agencies incentivize producers to meet performance targets. When producers fail to meet targets, government can respond with strong enforcement measures, including financial penalties. Effective legislation may also include a trigger mechanism to increase the minimum deposit value if and when performance targets are not met. Penalties clearly connect to the expectations outlined in targets and responsibility accrues to a specific party or parties. In a high-functioning DRS, producers should have the authority to run the system as they see fit, but that doesn't diminish the need for robust oversight and enforcement. Guardrails and careful monitoring are key to striking the right balance between the private sector's efficiency and innovation on the one hand, while ensuring optimized social and environmental outcomes on the other. Our guests today help us discover what the balance could and should look like in the world of a modern DRS. I'm so excited to talk with Ryan Castalia, who is the executive director of Sure We Can Education Center, New York City's only nonprofit redemption center. Uh, sure We Can started with canners experiencing homelessness in New York City and has evolved into a community center and sustainability hub with a mission to bring us closer to a responsible circular economy while incorporating values of social and material sustainability and paving the way forward for our climate and society in crisis. Sure We Can does truly tremendous work, as I can attest to, which is why I think our listeners will benefit, Ryan, from your perspective. So let's dive in. The Guide to Modern DRS, 10 Essential Practices, talks about a need for strong oversight and enforcement. Can you speak to ways in which business as usual, for example, in New York State, simply doesn't cut it? heard you talk about distributors making operational impositions that don't conform to the legislative intentions, but because it's communicated verbally and because operations like Sure We Can don't have a formal means of recourse, and honestly, because robust oversight is lacking, this is allowed to continue. So talk about how that specifically impacts Sure We Can and its canner community and the broader need to tighten up oversight to prevent abuses of the system. First, just thanks for having me, Elizabeth. I really appreciate it. As far as oversight, I think oversight and regulation are a really key aspect to these systems at large. I think lack of oversight in the bottle bill system in New York has a lot to do with, on one level, the system is elegant, simple, kind of takes care of itself. The government can kind of get away with not paying attention to it. And also the way it interfaces with the informal economy and marginalized folks, I think creates this gray atmosphere in the system that again, kind of compounds that sense of like, oh, we're just not going to dig too deep. We're not going to deal with the, the fussy things here. People leave the system and the people who work within it to their own devices. And while in some ways that's created a context where people have been able to take advantage of it in certain ways, whether for better or for worse, you know, I mean, lots of folks participate in the system 
who wouldn't have opportunities maybe in more structured formal contexts yet obviously that also creates space for bad actors and malpractice so it's really unfortunate to see the way the DEC, who has regulatory authority over the system here in New York, has essentially yielded that authority with nothing to take its place. They seem completely, I mean, I'm being hyperbolic maybe, but essentially completely inactive in terms of enforcement of the bottle bill, which means that, yes, distributors can take advantage in terms of changing rules with little notice, um, applying rules that aren't practical that seem to not be based in what's in the best interests of the system at large or the workers who support it. it and am I right that they, these changing the rules and operations largely put the burden onto the redemption centers and the case of Sure We Can, the canner community? Is that how you perceive it? Yeah, it's absolutely right in my view that these burdens do fall on redemption centers and canners more because they don't have as much power to influence them. The way the law is structured and the regulations means that in absence of a assertive and really clear regulatory presence, the distributors do have outsized power to influence this. They can, within the current regulatory framework, make these sorts of unilateral decisions that have huge consequences without engaging with canners or even redemption centers as stakeholders um, without proper notice. They can make changes one day and change it back another day. So it creates confusion and makes logistics really challenging. So it is imbalanced in that way. And I know there's a context that uh, creates that situation for the DEC. You know, it's not like everyone there is just like maliciously neglectful. But I think whatever that context is, it's created a circumstance where there's a lot of inequality and lack of transparency and unfairness in the system that it seems like nobody has the authority to address or to create that kind of accountability. And we're at the point where, you know, as redemption centers, we want to see the system thrive. So at least from Sure We Can's perspective, we would really welcome a transition that I think would have to happen via the law to create stronger regulatory frameworks, more transparency, shared platforms, things that could really create a sense of mutual accountability that would allow us to achieve the outcomes that the system is designed to achieve, which is, of course, maximum diversion and the economic empowerment of the folks who work within it, which right now do get obstructed by these vague and consistent or sometimes quite murky decisions that get made without accountability. Glad that you're talking about oversight. Um, one of the oversight components that we discuss in the guide, um, both in practices number two and six, is assuring that the system be designed for all users, right? And to maximize access and ease of getting container deposits back. Can you articulate for our listeners what role you see regulators playing to ensure convenient redemption? And specifically, what considerations are important when speaking about canner redemption in urban areas like New York City? Sure. I think for folks who aren't so familiar with the bottle bill or the redemption system, it can be hard to really envision the scope of work that's taking place, especially for canners who are redeeming a high volume of materials or supporting their whole livelihood from that work, or for the redemption centers who need to receive that. I mean, we're talking about a a waste situation where there are just millions and millions of containers produced, consumed, and potentially redeemed in the system on a weekly, monthly basis, you know, just a vast amount of material. 
for the folks who really earn their livelihood from that work, the canners, in order to say earn $100 in a day, which is a pretty meager amount when you're talking about supporting your whole livelihood, you have to collect and redeem 2,000 cans in a single day. So you need a service venue that can manage that volume. And really, redemption centers are the only existing venue in our system that can support that type of thing. So we think the redemption center aspect of the model, in addition, of course, to other access points like RBMs or retail return, redemption centers are really key, especially when we're talking about the workers who are working at really high volume. Sure, we can just this spring performed this study, the first ever effort to create like a census of uh, canners across New York City, discover where they're working, what they're doing, how, what barriers they face, what they need. Get really get a practical sense of who they are and uh, what's going on, which really no one's done it before. What we discovered is that the average age of canners in New York City is 54, 19% are over 65. Both men and women do this work. Most canners are immigrants or Black Americans. They're folks who experience marginality of various degrees. Most canners are housed but face housing precarity. So really, people who are doing this work are in the super delicate place in their lives in many cases, which means that they really need services that can be relied upon to support them. So if a canner needs to go to an RVM with those 2000 cans, but it doesn't take all their brands or it has a volume limit or say the machine's broken, say you need to go to five different machines in order to redeem your material, that's just not going to be supportive enough for folks to put food on the table, to be able to finish their day confident that they've done their work and they're going to be able to continue doing it. So redemption centers provide a sense of security in the system that I think other venues don't in terms of just being able to support the amount of work that's needed to do the collecting at a large scale. The way regulators play into this, I think, is by creating a context in which redemption centers can do their work with minimum interference and minimal obstacles. I mean, that's not the context we have right now. Again, distributors have a lot of power to change that context at will, and usually, I mean, entirely based on their own interests, their financial interests, which tend to involve depressing or slowing down the system rather than encouraging its efficient operation. So I think regulators can play a critical role by enforcing the existing regulations, by developing regulations that recognize how essential redemption centers are and promoting their interests in the regulatory framework, as well as that of initiators or distributors, and by recognizing the importance of recyclers, canners themselves um, in the work by offering protections or opportunities for entrepreneurship, for example, investments in the system that could allow new redemption centers to be created. When you talk about this major gap of infrastructure in New York City, because there's no redemption centers and the canners who are there, the workforce is there to co collect and redeem these containers and we're not meeting them where we need to meet them. It's not all that complex, but someone's got to pay which is the producers or the distributors, and then someone's got to hold them accountable. And that's the role of government is to say, this infrastructure, this redemption network needs to look different in New York City because you're it's a different setup, right? You've got a different workforce and you've got a different community of, of people who are trying to get their containers. And so the system should meet their needs. I think it's as simple as that. And that's just not happening in any capacity right now. We're getting there. 
and it's been really slow in coming, but the tide is starting to turn. Part of that, I think, is due to changing conversations around environmental justice at large and recognizing who are the people who have really borne the weight of these crises over the past decades. And canners are certainly in that category. Again, the bottle bill is, remains, to, even though it's neglected, it is the most effective recycling system in our city and our state. And that's largely due to the work of canners. As the deposit has become less and less of an incentive for people to return, it's canners who pick up that slack um, and canners who have been doing the legwork to make those recycling outcomes as strong as they've been. I next turn to Clarissa Murawski, CEO and co-founder of Reloop, who has worked extensively on the ways that oversight and enforcement works best in a DRS. So what is the proper role for government oversight in deposit return systems? What's too little? What's too much? Where's the sweet spot? So any DRS has to operate with some key framework conditions. And those are like the ones that you've identified, Elizabeth, in your guide to 10 essential practices. And that is sort of the foundation of any robust system. So you start there. Monitoring, as we said, is not just for government, it's for the business and the public, and it's absolutely necessary. Government really just needs to do that. They need to make sure that everything that they've articulated in the law is actually being followed and they have to follow up on it, get proof of it, get independent third-party audits, get the financial statements, get everything they need so that they can ensure that every part of their regulation is being complied with. Then we're good to go, but they do need to monitor it on a fairly regular basis. I would say too that one of the things that we suffer with is that DRSs are slightly complex and you need to have that competency in terms of the authority that is monitoring the system. And sometimes those authorities should consider third-party contracting to get a third-party expert to come in and do that oversight. And I remember when I was living in Ontario and the deposit return system was beginning, I remember that the government agency was not in a position to do that oversight because they didn't have the capacity. Over time, they gained it. But certainly at the beginning, they were contracting out to experts to make sure that it got done properly. And so, who pays for that? Well, ideally, that all gets paid by the producers because it's all part of the comprehensive program. You know, we sell these deposit return systems as not being financed by taxpayers, that they are financed ultimately by consumers and producers. So that should be part of it. And there are often enough regulations that identify that a certain amount of money or a certain amount of full-time employees need to be hired by the government to take over that enforcement piece. Talk about the notion of a trigger mechanism. In other words, when performance targets are not met, there's a possibility identified in legislation that the minimum deposit would be increased. First of all, you build it into a law and it will happen irrespective of any financial penalty that may be imposed on a producer. It's separate to the penalties. If the target for redemption is not met, then the deposit value will automatically increase. Now, we know that the deposit value is one of the key drivers of performance. So by increasing the deposit level, it's pretty well a guarantee that that performance is going to go up. 
And the thing about the trigger is it bypasses any highly political regulation change. Like the minute you want to change the law, the legislation, and it'll become a political process, then it's sure to die because increasing the deposit is something that producers don't want to see because they're concerned that it might lead to potentially fewer people buying beverage containers, which you've actually proven is not the case. But there are a number of reasons why an increase in deposit is highly political. So the trigger just gets rid of that. It says, look, this is automatic. You don't meet your performance after a certain amount of years. Usually it's done collectively, like these three years in a row, you don't meet this target. Then the automatic trigger happens. And we saw that happen. I think we saw it in Oregon. And of course it worked. I think Oregon is one of the top performing programs in America today. So they play a super important role and they actually work. Thanks to all our listeners who are so committed to learning about modern deposit return systems and the environmental and economic benefits they bring to our communities. In this fifth episode of Redemption, we heard from Ryan Castalia, Executive Director of Sure We Can Education Center, New York City's only nonprofit redemption center and Reloop International's co-founder and CEO, Clarissa Murawski. We hope you'll join us for the sixth episode of Redemption next week when we explore the next essential practice for a modern DRS. Practice number five, design, marking, and registration for containers. It may not sound sexy, but believe me, these factors play a critical role in determining the potential for beverage container recovery and recycling in a closed loop system. In the meantime, don't forget to visit bottlebillreimagined.org to download the guide or subscribe to our newsletter, Bottle Bill Common Ground. You can also leave a review on Redemption wherever you listen to your podcasts. And remember, working together from a common ground of knowledge about these 10 essential practices for a modern deposit return system, we can move good bottle bills forward. Bottle Bill.